1: Not because of who you really are, or the values that you really have, but by the thing that you've been subjected to. And I think, you know, that is such a perfect parallel to what we see happening every day when it comes to our immigrant communities.
0: Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian meets world. We're back another week. It's Will and Neil. What's happening, my man? What's going on in the mountains? Well, buddy, we're just uh, breathing in this good cold morning air. This time of year is my favorite time of year, Will. uh, You wake up and it's 50s and by lunch, it's 80s. So it's like the the perfect time to be uh, in my neck of the woods, in my opinion. I appreciate that, man. You have become my weatherman for the week. Uh, I think every episode <laughs> you mentioned the weather. I know, like it's, I think that's a sign of getting old. That's what they tell me. <laughs> like you're you're in tune with the weather, <laughs> or it's all you have to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but you know what? It's pleasant. I mean, it be, yeah. it beats the heck out of what most of the world's talking about, right? I like it. I like it. I'm not complaining. <laughs> I'm putting that down you know, on my on my experience line. The weatherman. I'm I'm adding it to the resume. <laughs> nice, nice. I would put that up top. Only job in the world you can be wrong 50 percent of the time and still get paid. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> I mean, I was hoping you had some app news for me today, Will. I have a little bit. I wanted to mention the $1 billion green bank again that Appalachia Community Capital is partnering with to try to attract that much money for this green bank. I just wanted to mention it again. We mentioned it last week. We, however, did not post it in the show notes. We'll post it in the show notes this week if you want to find out more about it. Also, the Appalachia Funders Network just issued a report what they're calling a siren call to philanthropy, suggesting their investments could go a lot further in Appalachia, specifically in central Appalachia. I wanted to mention that they have a webinar coming up on October 11th at 11 a.m. The Appalachia Funders Network will be talking about this report, sharing their findings in regards to philanthropic investment and the opportunities in Appalachia. So that may be boring to some, but I think it's a shift in how funding can get to the area. And I just wanted to mention that the last little piece of app news I wanted to mention, we've mentioned it before, but it's coming up next Tuesday, September 26th, the fifth and final stop of the Appalachian Roadshow by the ARC. In regards to state and local strategies for a stronger Appalachia, it's talking about building capacity, and it's going to have the governor of Maryland, Governor Wes Moore, as one of the speakers, as well as federal co chair Gail Manchin will obviously be one of the speakers, but that is their final roadshow. So you can register now. Just check out their website. We'll put it in the show notes. Register for that fifth and final stop. They have a special announcement at the end. They're going to announce the new class of the Appalachian Leadership Institute for twenty three twenty four. So exciting news, building capacity throughout Appalachia. That's really all I had this week, Neil. Yeah, I love it. You were talking about funding there, Will. People all the time want to complain about You know, we get all this funding, but where does it go? What's it used for? So if you've got any listeners out there, that webinar is a perfect opportunity to figure out where some of that uh, funding is going to trickle down to and and what they can expect. Tune in if you get a chance. Yeah, absolutely. And it's philanthropic funding and the philanthropic community, I won't call it a paradigm shift, but there's kind of been this shift in thinking of more community-based funding where they will fund community develop not only community development, but economic development, but from the bottom up, working with community organizations first and allowing the community organizations to really drive the funding. I think that's a big shift in the way philanthropy has worked in the past and the way they're trying to get it to work now to where all the money really goes to the residents of those locations rather than some of the federal money that never makes it to the ground. So I agree with you. It's a good opportunity take a listen if you can. You know, you talk about local people making a difference and, you know, it's kind of what we talk about all the time, but I hope that we'll get into more discussions about that. And I know the, per- the guests we're having on today will definitely talk about some local initiatives that they work on with what most see as a, as a national brand. We're having a couple of individuals on today, and they're going to be talking about welcoming communities. What do you you think, Neil, makes a welcoming community? Growing up the way we did, Will, in Appalachia, welcoming just means somebody that's friendly, somebody that's going to say hello to you, no matter the circumstance, treat you with respect. I mean, that's just kind of the way we were brought up, and that's what I think about when I hear, when you ask, what's it mean to be welcoming? We've talked about before how important it is to be a welcoming community and i I agree with you but also from the inclusive standpoint of welcoming to all when we're talking about immigrants or people that moving in be welcoming to them as well we've mentioned it on the show before will the small town that we grew up in and immigrants who moved in that we brought right in and made part of the community i'm glad we're going to talk about how we how we reach out to those communities and, and bring them into the fold and uh, I hope we get into discussing infrastructure. I know infrastructure is a r- weird word when we're just talking about welcoming communities, but there really is a strategy to build infrastructure in regards to becoming a welcoming community. Maybe we can just talk, about, try to talk about that with our guest today. You want to just get into it? Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. On the show today, we have Welcoming America. It's an organization working to build a movement of inclusive communities, really focusing on improving immigrant inclusion. And from that organization today, we have Lola Pack, the communications director, as well as Rachel Parrott, the executive director, where she has worked since 2011, helping the organization grow from a startup to an award-winning organization with a global footprint. So I wanted to thank you both for being on the show today and thank you for your willingness and time.
1: Glad to be here. An absolute pleasure.
0: As most Appalachians are big on history, big on tradition, Neil and I, our family's big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We have this gigantic spread of appetizers bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish?
1: Ooh, well, I love that you're big on eating because that's big in my family, too. And maybe in a lot of families. (laughs) Uh, I think about this time of year. uh, My family is Jewish and it's the new year. And one of the things that we like to eat at the new year is apples with honey.
0: Raw apples, not cooked. just
1: Just cut them up and throw some honey on. You can cut you can cook them too. There's a lot, there's a whole lot you can do with apples, as you know. <laughs> but just plain yeah. apples with honey. It's super simple and it's so delicious. Nice. Good answer. Lola?
0: Um can't to
2: go stereotypical and just say that I think like cheese plates are probably my favorite form of dessert. I mean, sorry, appetizer that um I could have any time in any quantity.
0: Yeah, you, you can't go wrong with cheese. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't mention in the intro. But we just came out of Welcoming Week, which we want to talk about. But first, maybe Rachel, can you just tell us a little bit about Welcoming America and how it all got started?
1: Sure. So, we are an organization that has been around. We're going to celebrate our 15 year anniversary next year, which is really exciting. Uh, And we came out of some work that was being done in communities to really express this value of being welcoming as new people, people who were born outside this country, were arriving. Uh, and in many places, that was going really well. And in some places, uh, folks were getting scapegoated and and blamed for problems that already existed in the community. And many of our first members at Welcoming America said, "Well, wait a minute. That's not that's not who we want this community to be. We want to be neighbors. Folks are coming to to live in our community, to put down roots, to raise families, and you know those are values that we share here. So." from those early days to today that work of you know really standing behind community leaders who want to make their backyards a, a welcoming place both for new people arriving and also people who maybe have been in the community for generations has been really you know the driving force behind our work and then welcoming week is a moment that we've been celebrating for more than a decade now where communities are extending an invitation for everyone to be part of that work you know, both during welcoming week and, and year round.
0: That's great. Can, can you give a couple of examples of maybe of some things that went on last week during welcoming week? I know you had a map on your website that showed all the locations that were doing things. I checked out some locations in the region of Appalachia. I know Youngstown was having some things. Can, can you just give some examples of maybe the things that went on and how maybe even next year, people more people could be part of the celebration?
1: Yeah. Oh, I love that you looked at the map, because that's my favorite part, too, just seeing, you know, all these places light up with activity. I happened to be last week in Northwest Arkansas, uh, in the Ozarks, and just, you know, seeing all of the amazing events that were happening there. And I think one of the things that's so wonderful about Welcoming Week is it's, it's become a real tradition in a lot of communities with... You know, events that are really involving, you know, libraries. Uh, in the case of Northwest Arkansas, they have a botanical garden. Was part of uh, Welcoming Week, and you know, really connecting cultural heritage of the past with maybe new cultures that are coming into the community. We see all kinds of activity happening to make sure that neighbors are really coming together and getting to know one another. Whether that's to break bread with one another or a lot of communities use sports or the arts to bring neighbors together and then welcoming week is a real moment for community leaders whether that's you know faith leaders or elected officials or just you know sort of recognized champions in the community to step forward in local media or wherever they have a platform and say you know these are these are the kinds of values that are important to our community and we're going to keep working year round to make that happen so a lot of Places have proclamations designating welcoming week. Lola probably has her favorites of some of the things that happen. So maybe I'll pass the mic to her.
2: Yeah, I kind of um, are in the deep of the social media trenches during welcoming week. And it's just like this bevy of activity that we really see. But <clears throat> kind of what we see there, too, is a lot of um, activations on social media, again, from local officials, from community organizations kind of really highlighting the work that they're doing year round. So other programs, initiatives that they're working on. Oftentimes the welcoming proclamations that Rachel uh, just mentioned, you know, the mayors will have someone recorded and then it gets posted to their social media accounts as well. So that's just another great way for them to kind of lean into their values uh, during that time. But they really just look like festivals and, you know, or something much more intimate, like, uh, you know, book uh, reading sessions, like at the library I saw, I went to one actually like just outside of Atlanta uh, where I live because it was also the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month um, and it went to a community where the population is about nearly half are um of Hispanic um, heritage. And so they just hosted this whole event with the mayor there, um, had some local officials like, you know, in different departments at the city uh, kind of come out and give remarks and just show like a lot of solidarity. There were local officials who were running for the city council there trying to just like, you know, create those relationships. There was a lot of food. There were a lot of things for children. There was a lot of music and dancing, um, but there was also just a lot of time for reflection. There was some chalkboard, uh, ch- like chalkboard, Mural being done, like, on the sidewalk of just, you know, um, some of the, like, representing Hispanic heritage uh, being done. And they were doing that collectively, whether it's, like, children and artists and, like, their parents. Um, So it's really, I would say, like, that event for me really kind of encapsulates what a very typical Welcoming Week event looks like. But we have events that are also um, very intimate, you know, either dinners or they're virtual. Welcoming Week also includes Citizenship Day in the U.S., which is usually around the middle of the month. Uh, For us, it was... um, september 17th and fun fact that australia actually has a citizenship citizenship day too that is the same as us and um it's when just a lot of cities will host these um ceremonies for naturalization and those are really special if you're able to go because you really see kind of the journey that a lot of people have gone on to become u.s citizens and it just really takes place in like kind of a very formal but also informal families are there and everybody's just like really happy uh to finally be able to say they're u.s citizens so there's a lot of like great things that happen um, just during that time. And there's also so much. I mean, we had 650 events happening for Welcoming Week all around the world. So it's, it's to crazy try. to
0: keep track of them all. Yeah, I was going to say hard to keep track, I'm sure. I did see during Welcoming Week that several communities actually took that time to report on studies that they have done in regards to the economic impact of immigrants on communities. And we talk about the importance of, of communities being welcoming all the time on here, especially when it comes to economic development and, and this impact that immigrant immigrants have. You have an initiative beyond welcoming week that's also called welcoming economic programs. You even had a, gu- a guide that, said, that is a guide to immigrant economic development, which I think is so cool to have that term, immigrant economic development. That's not something that you often hear and you have a whole guide supporting this. Can you explain that initiative and maybe also talk about why it's so hard for communities, or maybe they just don't want to understand of the economic impact that immigrants have on the community?
1: Well, maybe just to start off and kind of bring this back down to a human, a human level. I think a lot about my grandmother who came, my grandparents and my mom as an infant came to this country um, as refugees in the late 1940s. And over time, my grandmother ended up being a small business owner. And in the 1980s, she moved her business from New York City to a small town in Maryland, right at the base of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, And I still remember the day that the mayor came out to cut the ribbon and welcome her business into town, which, you know, meant a lot to my family as this gesture of welcoming, but also her business was part of really the revival of Main Street businesses as immigrant-owned businesses have been for the last couple of decades, driving just about all of the growth of Main Street businesses. So, you know, when you kind of zoom out from that picture, the reality of our demographics in the U.S. is that new people are, by and large, immigrants in communities. And when we create the conditions for immigrants or anyone in our community To feel and be valued uh, and make sure that they have access to resources, whether that's starting a business or being able to, you know, get an education and be employed in the workforce at their skill level. That's good for the economy. And one of the reasons that's driving a lot of places to want to get behind welcoming values is It's hard to keep people in a community if we don't feel welcomed, if we don't feel like we belong, if we, you know, pack up and move to a place and there's a kind of superficial welcome, but then our kids are getting bullied in schools or, uh, you know, we're not getting the message that we, you know, can really thrive in a place. So a lot of places have been losing population for a long time in the United States, especially some of our more rural counties. And so some of the most enthusiastic welcoming communities are those same places, which is not about, you know, immigrants being like superior (laughs) human beings in any way. It's just about making sure that all people in a community are valued, can put down roots and thrive. And when we do that, that's good for everyone. It's good for our tax base. And so the reports that you mentioned, a lot of places have been looking at kind of the bottom line of what happens uh, when they are you know, places that are welcoming for immigrants and, you know, as taxpayers, as business owners, and just as fellow neighbors, you know, it's it's the right thing to do to be a welcoming place, but it's also the, the pragmatic thing to do.
0: Uh, on the flip side of that, I, I wanted to ask, In parts of Appalachia, actually a lot of Appalachia, historically we've been kind of focused on an extractive economy, whether it be coal or timber or steel or or whatever, where outsiders have come in, have exploited the areas, almost leaving behind this sentiment of distrust, almost this culture of distrust among a, a lot of people throughout our region. Is this something that you have seen in our region, maybe that is hard, difficult to overcome, especially for immigrants that are moving in that are seen as outsiders because we have this culture, this historic culture or history of this exploitation or people coming in, taking and not giving back to the region. Is this something you've come across?
1: Well, first of all, I'm so glad you brought that into the conversation because when I came into, You know, I'm really thrilled to be on this podcast and really appreciate what you're what you're doing to try to shift some of the narratives, because I think who better than Appalachians understands what it means to not be the ones writing your own story. Right. (laughs) And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Appalachia was defined as a place because of its poverty and because of and that poverty existed in large part because of that extractive economy that you're describing. And what happens, you know, throughout history to so many different kinds of people is that you become defined (laughs) by outsiders, not because of who you really are, or the values that you really have, but by the thing that you've been subjected to. And I think, you know, that is such a perfect parallel to what we see happening every day when it comes to our immigrant communities. So, you know, either that can become, I think, a sense of you know, breaking where people are pitted against each other, and everybody stays poor. (laughs) And everybody has somebody else telling, you know, the story about them, or that becomes the opportunity, you know, both for immigrants and for long timers to say, we're a community together, what's the story that we want to tell about ourselves? And, you know, how can we build up from this? And I think that not to paint too rosy a picture, but My experience of Appalachian communities is like a deep sense of kinship, a deep sense of community and neighborliness. And I think the rest of us have a lot to learn from that. And when it comes to You know, building communities that are truly welcoming, I think we have a lot to learn from Appalachia. (laughs) So, what I would love to see and have seen in a lot of our members that are in that region is, you know, a lot of really deep work to say, okay, we may not, you know, eat the same food. We may not, you know, start off speaking the same language. We may not, you know, like some of this can be kind of awkward, but over time, we can be neighbors and we can be stronger and we don't have to be pitted against each other by those same extractive industries that are looking to do that to keep us poor. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing. And I hope that we can keep seeing more of that.
0: Well, that's a, a beautiful perspective and very, very well said. Much, much better than I could, I could have said. But I, I appreciate your sentiments there in regards to the parallel between the immigrant community and the communities throughout Appalachia. I see that every day. And and we talk about it on this program all the time that because we get outside of the region a lot and talk to other regions, and we see m- many more similarities than we see differences between regions, especially when it comes to challenges. So I wanted to talk about, you mentioned rural earlier. I know you have an initiative rural welcoming initiative is what you call it. Why the focus on rural, which I think is important personally, but I was just wondering, Welcome America, why the focus on rural? And two, I looked at your list of 2023 participants. There were two from Appalachia. One is Knoxville and one is Blacksburg, which I don't always typically think of as rural, but um, I wonder the definition of rural. Maybe you focused on the larger areas so it could spill out into the more rural areas outside of that. But just uh, about that initiative and and why the focus on rural.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad you picked up on the rural welcoming initiative. It's something that we're really proud of at Welcoming America, in part because some of the very first welcoming efforts, including kind of the founding welcoming effort that Welcoming America was born out of uh, in Shelbyville, Tennessee historically happened in smaller towns. And that story happened to get chronicled in a PBS documentary back in 2011 called Welcome to Shelbyville. It's still a fantastic film. And I think, you know, a lot of places either with intention or not, you know, became destinations for immigrants because of poultry processing plants or, you know, whatever the economy was locally. And then, you know, wanted to figure out how to be a welcoming community, but didn't really see, you know, as peers, some of the bigger gateway cities that we traditionally think about when we think about immigrant America. So, you know, New York City felt like pretty far off (laughs) if you're um, Blacksburg. So we wanted to create a community around people working to create community in rural places. Um, And we also thought that there was a lot to be learned from rural places, which, you know, we define as also rural counties and smaller towns. Some of them, you know, clearly are larger, (laughs) but also, you know, I think share a lot in common with one another as places that might be in more conservative parts of the country or, you know, under-resourced in terms of their access to philanthropic dollars or other things that, you know, some of the bigger cities might have. And what we found is that people were really excited about doing this work, not only in the United States, but actually around the world. So we are in the process now of running an exchange program between rural communities in Australia and rural communities in the United States. Very cool. Yeah, I think
2: it's just to uplift what Rachel um, mentioned about rural places actually really leading the way when it comes to modeling what welcoming communities can really look like, because I think in some of the larger cities, we there are some barriers, a lot more bureaucracy when it comes to just the different, you know, players, I guess, in the community that want to kind of advance this work around immigrant inclusion Um, but among like our certified welcoming cities for example we only have 18 right now across the country and like most of them are are, like smaller to mid-sized places and it's because like they're kind of the perfect model for you know just like how and I think it's just because of the closeness like you know that people sense with each other and there's just like easier maybe in some ways not the work isn't easy, but <clears throat> it can be like a lower barrier to see sort of the impact of the work because, you know, maybe the like more like smaller areas, you can see it happening more like in Erie, Pennsylvania, for example, you know, a pretty small town, but, uh, you know, just we've seen some of like the best leaders and the best work in inc- inclusion come out of there simply because like, you know, just the size and the nature and like how the culture of the community, partly due to its size, you know, and location, I think is uh, really conducive uh, to creating, um, that culture of welcoming um, and so that's why they've just I've always been and we've just always tried to champion and things like the rural welcoming initiative were just kind of helped to formalize some of that but really the work has always existed with or without you know us you know formalizing
0: yeah. it I think that's a really good point and and talking about shifting that narrative and mis- getting back to misconceptions I think people have that misconception that larger communities like New York City are much more diverse than smaller rural areas when in fact there are several examples where that is not the case, even within the own state of New York. I talked about earlier, Jamestown, New York. It is one of the most diverse, both within its government as well as the community members, most diverse cities in New York. People would automatically assume New York City, but Jamestown is a very diverse city. We've actually had the mayor of Jamestown on this episode before talking about. Jamestown and and how they are accepting to immigrants and refugees, especially during the current crisis. But I I wanted to talk about those communities, those certified communities that you're talking about, those kind of maybe you refer to as smaller communities, but I know there are two in Appalachia that are actually certified. You mentioned Erie, Pennsylvania, but also Pittsburgh. Can you just talk about how you become, well, well, maybe just talk about what makes a community welcoming? And then what is the definition of a certified community and how do you become one?
1: So what makes a community welcoming is that there's really a broad embrace of this value across the community and then policies and practices in a couple of key areas that we found to be especially important that communities are working to put in place. We think of this as an infrastructure, you know, we think about you know, roads and bridges as kind of our physical infrastructure, but um, there also needs to be a social infrastructure in place so that, you know, our diversity is just a fact, (laughs) but whether people can actually, you know, participate in the community, whether they can access services in the community or contribute to those things, you know, is something that communities really need to shape. So the kinds of policies and practices that make for a welcoming community look like local government, making sure that there is somebody uh, within local government who is, you know, looking across different functions and making sure that there aren't barriers to people being able to participate or access resources. Um, Sometimes that's just about language, making sure that, you know, things are accessible in a language that people can understand. Sometimes it's about uh, making sure that there's trust being built between, you know emergency management or police and residents. And you know, when those things happen, that's not just good for immigrant communities. it's really good for everyone. We also look at our workforce systems, our schools, you know, how are those community institutions, you know, making sure that people are able to really access and participate in them. And all of that is encoded in something that we call the welcoming standard. Uh, which is on our website, is really a tool that communities can use to guide their work, communities of any sizes. And then certifying a community means that our team goes in and does an audit where we talk to members of the community. We ask for documentation to say, how well are you doing meeting, meeting the standard? And if uh, they've done well enough, they can become certified as a welcoming place but also that becomes a tool because really what they're doing is holding up a mirror to themselves. I think most places want to think of themselves as as welcoming and that's a great place to start from. But we also know that that, you know, is only possible if those that goodwill is backed up, you know, by concrete action and so we want to give communities a tool to be able to make sure that they're making progress and that it's progress that, you know, from residents all the way up to mayor, everybody can see and feel that.
0: Yeah, I love that word action. You have a lot of resources on your website, and people should definitely check out your website, welcomingamerica.org. Should definitely rec- uh, check it out and find out about the resources there. There are a number of things that your communities can do or access on the website in regards to building action within the community. I also wanted to talk about you know, when, when you become a welcoming community and, and you're welcoming to an influx of, of refugees or, or, or immigrants that come in, there's also, I, I know in Jamestown specifically that we, we spoke about, there's also this impact, on, there, there's a cost associated with that. And there's an impact on resources. Is that the conversation that you guys also have with communities? I know you spoke about policy, but what in regards to the added cost from whether it be refugees or or immigrants that are moving into a community? Is that something that communities come to you about to discuss or is that something that you guys think about?
1: Yeah, and I'm really well, I'm thrilled that you talked to Jamestown cuz I think they're doing some great work and you know, glad to hear that the mayor has been talking about that. And I'm also really glad that you brought up this question of cost cuz I think, you know, it's very easy to say, well, you know, we're painting a rosy picture here, but there, you know, there are costs associated, you know, when anybody new comes to a community, you know, I think a good analogy to that is like adding a seat at the dinner table. But I think what also happens is when you add a seat at the dinner table, you also add a cook in the kitchen. And so what we're talking about here are folks that are going to be joining the workforce in a lot of parts of the country where, again, because of a declining population and a declining workforce, there's a lot of job opportunities (laughs) available that need to get filled. And also, you know, just as my grandmother did, opening up new businesses, creating economic activity. So what we see is that there absolutely there can be upfront costs not only in those economic costs, but really just in the adjustment to new people in a place, maybe finding housing. And those are real. I mean, I know in in Jamestown, you know, there are some questions about, you know, initially people, you know, being able to access the food bank, for example. Mm -hmm. But what we also know is that this is a long-term investment. And without, you know, without new people coming into our communities, we will atrophy. And so it's really important for us to be thinking about you know, how can we prepare our communities to reduce the costs up front, but also to maximize the long-term benefits and opportunities that come you know, when new people can put down roots and really thrive in our community. And why would we want to make it harder for people to do that as quickly as possible? And that's where we need both good federal policy, but also welcoming infrastructure at a community level so that it's not just like a surprise when people show up at our doorstep, but something that we're meaningfully planning for, you know, anticipating and then working to incorporate people so that, you know, so that everybody can thrive together.
0: There are some in in regards to policy short-term as well as long-term resources on your website. Can you, you want to talk about any of those that we maybe haven't uh, that would be, maybe important for some of our listeners or some of the communities throughout our region?
1: Well, Let's first talk about welcoming week resources, because I think, you know, a sort of first step that a lot of places can take is to celebrate welcoming week with us. And we've got a great toolkit uh, for this year. If folks want to check that out, would love to have, you know, everyone on the map that wants to be uh, join us for next year's welcoming week. And then, you know, I think that there's a lot of not just tools for doing the work, but also case studies of places who you know, have been moving in a welcoming direction that are both on our website, but also we exist to support leaders in communities. That's what we do every day at Welcoming America. So if you are in a community that wants to start doing this work, would love for you to reach out to us because our team can help you think through what some of the first steps might be. We also have a lot of resources that are for different kinds of organizations. So some tools that are specific to arts organizations. some tools that are specific to emergency management, how do we do that in an inclusive way, Um, as well as folks that might be situated in local government. So lots out there, and our team can help kind of curate that for you uh, to find the resources that are most useful to you.
0: That's perfect. And that's welcomingamerica.org. I guess there's contact information on there as well.
2: Welcomingamerica.org is probably the first place to start. There's our contact information is all there. And then a lot of the pages will jump off to um, other websites that talk about specific initiatives, including Welcoming Week, which Welcoming Week is welcomingweek.org. If you want to know specifically more about Welcoming Week there.
0: Uh, I, just to Just to familiarize our listeners with you all, can you just talk briefly about where you're from and where you live now?
1: Well, I can kick us off. So I grew up in uh, a suburb of Washington, D.C. in Montgomery County, Maryland. Spent some time in other parts of Maryland and in Atlanta, but have come back here to make it my home.
2: I grew up in the Atlanta area, about half an hour outside the city um, in a not so small town now, but it was at one point called Duluth.
0: So we ask all of our guests this question, and I'm always curious to to hear. So whatever comes rolls off the tongue is what I want to know. What's the first thing that you think about when you hear the word
1: Appalachia? I think about my childhood because I spent a lot of it out in the, I don't know, wilderness <laughs> hiking and spending time, especially in West Virginia, because that's not too far from here. And I think about the Appalachian mountains and just, I don't know, their their timelessness. It's a beautiful place.
2: I actually think about snow because that's where I learned how to ski when I was a kid and would drive up to Boone, North Carolina and uh back when <laughs> snow was a bit more frequent in that part, but um that is where I learned to ski as a kid.
0: I like both of those answers, but I must say, Lola, I love Appalachia like nobody else, but the snow is way better out west,
2: oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I mean, I think it's. I think once you learn to snow on more like icy snow, then you can really yeah. appreciate the good snow out West.
0: I to- totally agree. Totally agree. You answered Neil's question of where you live, but your vision statement, it, I just want to read it. A just work in which we each bring prosperous and thrive in the place we now call home, no matter where we came from. So the question that we ask everyone is just where do you call home What makes it home for you? What makes it unique?
1: Well, I heard somebody say this once, and I think it's true. Home is where your family is. You know, I happen to come from a family that comes from all over. My husband's originally from Bosnia in coal mining country, which I think of as like the Appalachia of the Balkans. (laughs) You know, home to me is this constant quest to find a place where not just me, but my family and my loved ones all together can find a sense of safety and family and security, you know, in a place to really put down roots.
2: I feel like my sense of home is kind of split into three places, Uh, mostly Georgia, just because this is where I grew up, born and raised here um, in the Atlanta area. But um, my parents are from Korea. So, you know, there's and grew up going there, you know, summers as a kid, still do periodically. And um, also in Washington, D.C., actually, where I met my husband and really had a lot of my formative experiences uh, in that city. So, um, yeah, home is a lot of different places. But yes, it is important where family is. And that's what that's what makes home.
0: Obviously, there's no right or wrong, but it's always it's always nice to hear that perspective, especially from people um, with to Neil's questions that live outside the region to hear their perspective on that as well. We want to thank you both for being on the episode. We hope Neil and I were welcoming as part of this podcast. So thank you for your time. I know you both are busy, but we greatly appreciate it. Greatly appreciate the work you're doing, especially at, at Welcoming America. You know, we say all the time of how important it is for smaller communities that you mentioned are losing that population throughout Appalachia, are losing a lot of resources, of becoming more welcoming, how important it is not only from an economic standpoint, but just from a social standpoint, from a human standpoint. So thank you uh, for your time today and um, we, we greatly appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for being really the ultimate welcomers. We really appreciated the chance to be with you today and just also really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast and hope to hear more stories of places that are doing the work of being welcoming. We know they're out there and we're here to support them. Thanks for having
2: us.
0: Will great information on tonight's episode from these two ladies, and like we like we already told them how much I appreciate them coming on. But I just wanted to see if you came away from it with the same takeaways as I did, man. I was, and to be honest, I knew a little bit, but I didn't know the extent that they're going to 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 make people feel welcome having what just come out of welcoming week i think that's really an important week to shine a spotlight on welcoming communities on the importance of being a welcoming community and we mentioned in the episode how you can become a certified welcoming community i think if you check out their website they have a lot of resources that you can not only find best practices you not can not only read up on what on welcoming communities, but you can also find things in regards to taking action. So check out their website. Yeah, for sure. One of the questions I had wrote down, Will, that I didn't get to ask, I knew of a few, but I didn't know the number. I was going to ask, and uh, they they answered it before I could ask, how many welcoming events they had. Yeah, I think she said over six, 600. Six, 650. They definitely have to track and keep up. Yeah, so, pretty remarkable what all they do. And, you know, I, I came away just very impressed with uh, yeah. not only our guests, but just their entire organization. Yeah, maybe next year they there will be even more during Welcoming Week. So we want to thank them. We want to thank Rachel, thank Lola for being on the episode and taking the time. For sure, yeah. I didn't ask you in the beginning, but we totally skipped over what's happening this week. Yeah, Will, and I – You know, I was going to mention it because I totally think it's relatable to our episode. We're talking about welcoming week. And in my small community, like many other small communities through Appalachia, there's one weekend in particular that that should be, uh, I guess, labeled as our welcoming weekend, if you will. People from all over the world know about it because of its illustrious name. The World Chicken Festival, Will. Yeah, you know how big festivals are in Appalachia. Every small community has one, but the community there where you're from, it's not only the local chicken festival, it's the world chicken festival welcoming people from all over the world. Yeah, some of our listeners may not know, but the world chicken festival based in London, Kentucky is a once a year event in September that, you know, originally started because of the fact that laurel county is where kentucky fried chicken originated so it's kind of like our claim to fame i guess but this festival has turned into a weekend long event there's all sorts of things going on all the way down to a clucking contest will which i know <laughs> you've been super impressed with in the past yeah. uh, so i couldn't i couldn't let this episode get away from us without mentioning the World Chicken Fest. If you're around London, Kentucky, uh, make sure you stop in this weekend. Definitely, we'll just highlight that as the app biz or the app festival of the week, which started yesterday, correct? Yep, yep, that's right. I can promise you there will be many welcoming events that you can uh, be a part of, and the fine folks in London will make sure that you feel, you feel warm and invited if you show up and come down to Main Street and check out Check out all the venues. You can go online and check out the musical guest. Uh, everything going on this weekend regarding the chicken festival. So I hope some of you'll come check it out. Including the world's largest frying pan. Of course. It's a staple. Gotta check that out. <laughs> Gotta eat some chicken out of the world's largest frying pan. So no. I always wondered about that. How, how do they keep, you know, flies and everything else from, from getting into that world's largest frying pan? I mean, Will, if you want to get into the discussion, can you really <laughs> keep flies out of yeah. every anywhere? Yeah, I don't, guess. I I don't mean, guess so. Just take your chance. I mean, I'm sure it'll taste the same. Like Mama used to tell us, the grease is hot. It'll burn off. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely wanted to highlight that. It's Thursday through Sunday. It's the 21st through the 24th. So like Neil said, go check it out. If you're in the area, if you're not, like he also said, it's a very welcoming festival, not only to the local area, but to the world. Yes, sir. Glad we got that in. We want to thank our guests again from Welcoming America, Miss Rachel Perrick and Miss Lola Pack. And Neil, I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace.
1: I'm up in the night. I'm getting lighter, the air's getting thin, now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long, sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs, now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains.